Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich, founder of the League of Movable Type, and this is the Weekly Typographic, a podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Thomas. Hey, Micah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so loud. I got How excited. How are you doing? How are you I'm doing, do- I'm doing friend? good. I'm doing good. It's a new week. It's a new week of typographic discussions with my good friend, Micah, and I couldn't <laughs> ask for a better time than talking fonts with Micah. And all you listening right now. So obviously last week was like our first jump back into it. We're going to find our little groove. Also, Thomas and I have been nerding out about font stuff for an hour before this. So I'm in a good mood. I think you're in a good mood. I've been in a great mood all day. It's fantastic. Summer season. I get my iced coffee. It's good life. Oh, yeah. What's your go-to? What did you get? Just a normal iced coffee with oat milk. No sugar. Oh, all right. I love a brown sugar personally. Fascinating. (laughs) Anyway. We have some really cool type news this week, some real boundary pushing stuff, which is exciting. As always, if you are a member, you are also going to get some awesome links to fonts that we have hunted down from the internet this week. We've been trying to find some really good fonts to include in the newsletter and members for five bucks get that every week. And we have five wonderful, cool interesting articles to chat about this week that's right so our first topic is on style drop text to image generation in any style from google research micah what's this about this is some crazy ai it's a category that we're calling a lot of this ai that we've been seeing in the last few months pop up generative ai as in it can take other things that it knows already exists and make a new thing based on just a prompt that you write in, right? Yeah. And so this, I think you put it really well, and you can elaborate on this in a second, but you had said this is for one of the first times, at least, separating style from content in AI. So this can this can take the same content and apply a bunch of different styles that you prompt, right? Yeah. And actually, I think the most unique thing about this, if you read the research papers they publish with this thing is they can take just from one source image, your choice, and then take that one source image and then derivative out a whole bunch of different content from that. So for example, like they have it in their example website, like they have a, like a watercolor painting and it's literally in the style of this thing, make a stuffed bear, basically a teddy bear based on the style. So when we say this style, it's referring to just that reference image that you selected. And then it generates out incredibly good articulated renderings of all those different prompts. And the reason why they're able to do it is in all the other examples in the past, like stable diffusion, for example, if you're familiar with that, was they would cross correlate the content to the stylization together. They had to be linked together. This one trained them separately. They, that's what we meant by divorcing the content to the form or the stylization. And I got to say, also a big problem also is in this context, in the weekly typographic, they could do basically illustrative lettering really well. The quality is actually surprisingly good compared to their prior examples of stable diffusion. Like those were completely missing the mark. And when they right. would try to make something, it was like homogenized and letters themselves are actually really difficult to render because <laughs> they're right. too particular. But this one has done a really good job, at least on their example pieces they're demonstrating to us, which are obviously cherry-picked to be the best. But it's very convincing. 
obviously this is a very interesting point because I've heard some people talk about online already where it basically, and actually I know from teaching, like when I teach my intro graphic design class, I'm doing assignments like this prompt. Here's a style or here's a reference point. Make me other icons based on it. I've actually mm. given student assignments like this. So it's literally automating the cognitive process I'm trying to teach my students to do, which is take from a source and then interpolate out a new basic derivatives that are similar to it, but are obviously content wise different. So I've done this where it's like basically like a vectored illustration, like a super geometric shape, make me a bunch of food icons, for example. Obviously, leads to the question of the, and I think we have another article coming up related to AI, related to branding. So this might be fun to talk about between the two of them. What do we do with this? What's going to happen here? Is, is everyone losing their jobs? That's the question of the day when we see this. You hit a lot of different interesting points. So one, if you look at this, you can see some super impressive things. On the left, the reference will be Starry Night, right? Famous painting. And then they'll say a cow in this style and suddenly a cow exists or a banana. And that in itself is impressive. Then that next section that you're talking about with the character rendering is not something I have seen before. Yeah, that's new. Yeah, so many other generative image AI platforms that have come out in the last few months mangle letters because it's like pulling from all these different sources that it has seen before and blending them together to generate the imagery. And so the fact that you could say a letter B in the style of Van Gogh's Starry Night and it draws a letter B, that in itself is unique and crazy. Yes. I think it's very useful that you described it as lettering because it really is, right? Like we're not generating vector lines out of this where you can immediately turn it into fonts. It's an image that it's generating, a flattened PNG or whatever. And so that's more akin to lettering than anything else. Yeah, at 520 by 520 or 1024 by 1024. So like just the edge of web accessible, like web use purposes. A lot of generative AI have that low resolution and then you can pipe it into another AI that upreses it and finds the detail and scales it. Exactly. I was going to say with a preface of you can use upscalers to basically get that resolution up. Also what you said, it's not that in itself is crazy. Like how long have we watched on TV shows in like CSI them being like enhance Enhance. and being like, (laughs) that's not real. Now it's freaking real. That's crazy. Oh, no. It's on. The only thing stopping now is just the movement from bitmap assets to vector assets. That's it. That's basically the next step in the discussion is we both with these bitmap assets. Once it gets vectorized, then we're off to the races. Even just on the icon logo side, because that's a whole section, like basically what I'm referring to with my intro to graphic design students when I train them in this stuff. There's a section, my subject and my style is on the webpage. It's literally like vector icons. But yeah. their outputs are PNG, so that's why it's annoying. So right now, you have to upscale it, and then you probably got to bring it in the Illustrator to do a auto trace, and then do cro- right. proper Bezier wrangling to make it look good. But it's not that we're not that far off from basically switching over. That's a big jump to get there, but that's basically the next step. Let alone the discussion on lettering, because it is lettering at this point. Actually, the typographic aspects, it's right. they do great outputs, but they're definitely lettering pieces. Which is cool, perfectly fine. But as, it's interesting to see the development of this technology. I mean, you were, I was, we were talking about looking at this link earlier in the week, and I sent you, Mike, a tweet from Tiffany Wardle 
where the, she was a part of a thread discussion talking about the implications of this technology. And definitely, I think this is an issue of understanding IP rights, right? Because obviously, it's almost like when you produce work for your clients and hand it off to them, there's a hypothetical, unless you have in your protections, in your contract, where they can't just take it and then just do a bunch of derivative generation outputs from AI. And there you go. You just, because actually a lot of designers, they usually, a lot of designers get a lot of the revenue from these kind of derivative projects. You have a font, you export, and it's almost an adjustment on the font. In that context, I've heard that plenty of times. Designers make a good amount of revenue just from that procedure. So if you don't have those protections in your agreements, hypothetically, your clients could take your products and generate derivatives from that if they have the rights to it. And it is a new thing to watch out for because they might do it without having the rights. Like a lot of, I would say, unintentional stealing. It's intentional, but not knowing that it's stealing is very normal these days. Like... Many times I'll go to a restaurant, take a beautiful photo, post it on my Instagram, tag them, and then the next day the restaurant will be posting my photo on their account because it's a beautiful photo. Of course. A lot of people in those positions are not even educated on the fact that is technically stealing my photo and using it. Yeah. Most copyright laws, how should I remember Joyce? Kettler of Jordan Studio talking about that. She's one of our best practitioners and speakers about copyright for fonts. She said plenty of times, basically copyright law for fonts is retroactive. Like mm. the presumption she has, and she's calling our conversations and lectures she's given on the topic. She can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my understanding from what she said was um, it's the presumed basically right. someone's going to violate these rights. And the discussion of negotiations are after the fact. That's basically the position most people have now. Now, is it worth you hustling after that? Restaurants? Maybe not. In the context of what we're talking about here, especially with this style drop, somebody could go to your portfolio, find an image of a mm -hmm. thing that you have made. Maybe you make an icon set or something and it was for a company. They paid you. It, it's not open source. It's like a private thing that only they are licensed to use. They find images. It's potentially possible that somebody's going to be like, oh, just take that image, apply that style, and then generate new icons in the style of somebody that they yeah. don't have the license. To. And at the very minimum in the proposal section, mood boarding section, yeah. totally going to happen. That's 100% going to happen. Be aware of it so that you can keep an eye on it. Yeah. We'll talk more about this with the third article. I think with the AI right, right, and branding right. discussion. So that, I think there are larger implications in our industry and career that are going to come from this. So let's table it. This is, but definitely right. check out the article and let's, we'll continue, me and you, Mike, will continue this conversation with the third article. What's our next one? Our next one is from one of the font foundries that everybody loves, Vocal Type. Shout he, out to Trey. We love Trey, friend of the league, fan of all of his work. And if you're unfamiliar with vocal type, his foundry is making typefaces based on significant historical and cultural movement signage. And so this one is a font that is based on some of the signage from Tiananmen Square in 1989. It's beautiful. This, what we're linking to is some of the history and behind the scenes and imagery inspiration and talking about how he got there. At the bottom is a link to the actual font where you can test it out and buy it. It's a beautiful font and I love 
A, I love all of the context that he is providing, but I especially love the introduction where he's saying, I was unsure if I should even release this because it's like he's acknowledging that he is just trying to honor an important historical event in history. And he was concerned about overstepping his bounds, but people encouraged him that it was valuable and worth releasing. And so he did with this kind of very thoughtful introduction. I love. In general, vocal types narrative structure for a type, I think is very insightful and very unique because the argument is being presented, you know, in his work and the other fonts in the collection of vocal type, there's a very clear thematic connection. There's quotations from civil rights in Tenement Square, which actually I have to be blunt with you. I knew it happened. I remember reading about it in history class. I did not know about these particular aspects, let alone the statue of the goddess of democracy, liberty. I did not know that existed. So I think the narrative structure of that page and the discussion of putting the context for this font, I think it was very intelligent, very thoughtful, and actually endowed a lot of meaning and significance to the project in general. So with those caveats and statements Trey made in the beginning, I think the narrative justified why this foundry and this collection should make a font series based on this topic, even if he's not ethically Chinese, because of the larger cultural narrative of basically liberation and freedom and democracy. I think that's very much a normal, a kind of common thread of Trey's work in all the time historical periods. He's drawing out these lettering sourcing from to produce these fonts. He also makes a, an interesting point that I was equally uneducated on. I mean, in that introduction, he says, I was brought to the realization that anyone lending their hand in the creation of this endeavor might face severe repercussions. This in itself speaks volumes about the intensity and emotional gravity surrounding this issue. That just even facing backlash, being in support of the revolution of this, some people have problems with him. It's funny even just acknowledging it exists as a statement, a political statement. So that's the point. Like It's not even... Beyond even the question of affirming it, like in the sense of this is a good thing, just acknowledging it even happened is the political act in and of yeah. itself. Because yeah. as it's, as Trey says in the essay, there are native-born Chinese that only learn about the episode when they leave the country. Yeah, It's it's literally the even act of remembrance of it is the political act itself before even affirming that even if it's a good thing or not, which I think, again, shows the magnitude of the situation. And if anything, again, points to why it's worthwhile for Trey to do it, to make this project in the first place. Yeah, agreed. It is interesting. Pondering poetics or philosophy here. Anyways, Mike, shall we move on? All right. The next one is an interesting article titled, I went to a conference on AI and marketing and branding, and I got a lot more than just this tote bag. Nice long title. (laughs) Yeah. So the the summary point, it's a commentary of a conference about AI and it's in cross-section with branding. And it was a walkthrough of basically here's what I, from my takeaway from the author's point of view, here's what seems legit and what seems unreasonable or like hype games with it, which I do appreciate. I think that's it actually, I think it's a lot of hype and I think some honesty about where does it really line up in actual application. I think this this is a nice segue to our first article discussion about style drops because this is obviously the parallel in branding and I do think he has some interesting points, specifically like this service called Flare he talked about in the article, where mm-hmm. it's for prototyping purposes. 
which is the most obvious. If I had to tell you what kind of, if I had to say a guess where AI is going to get used in the design context and branding, it's going to be obviously like the grunt work stuff. Like the kind of thing we would junior designers would be hired to spend a whole, like make a hundred logo directions go in the, for the morning or give me a mock-up of this brand direction for the client go. I'll see right. you guys in the morning. So basically all the nasty grunt work, the junior designers interns had to do and ad agencies and whatnot basically has been now delegated to AI. That's effectively what's game played out. I would generally agree with that, which I feel like I've heard in other places. It's almost like the utopia of technology was supposed to allow us to all be artists. If you're reading Karl Marx, for example, the argument is that society, if we get past capitalism to the communist society, we're going to all be artists. We're going to like fish in the morning, farm in the afternoon, go and be artists in the evening and have discourse with our friends. Unfortunately, what's happened is all the grunt work and drudgery are actually really hard to do in AI, but like all these things of creativity have been just completely delegated or more importantly, not even real creativity, but like the things that are like the entry levels kind of modes of initiation for the creative industry. Like the things I did when I first was in apprentice or like when I know my, all my colleagues who've been, who were junior designers dealt with. It's almost quite frankly, in personal opinion, I just met reflecting on this. It's like AI allowed everyone who's already senior directors, like senior designers to get up the ladder. And now we get, we kick the ladder up behind us. <laughs> and now all the junior designers, like all the students, like a lot of times, like when you're hired as a junior designer, it's to do this grunt work. That's effectively, it's kind of like you're being hired, acknowledging, yes, we're hiring you. We're going to get you under the wing. We're going to get you initiated into what it means to be an actual designer, not what school tells you what it is or pretends to be. And in exchange for that, you're going to do grunt work that hmm. it's going to just take a lot of time and just is monotonous. AI kind of blows all that up. It doesn't blow up the high creativity stuff. It certainly blows up all that production grunt work stuff. That's my personal assessment. And I would agree with this author saying about that. With this, the author's not saying this is going to hurt junior designers. That's my interpretation of it, but that's how I'm seeing it. I normally see that's where junior designers end up working is doing that kind of stuff. I don't think it changes that position. It just changes what you're doing when you're in that position. Oh, what? Just running? As, but the, what the article does say is how many designers do you need to do that though? I do think places that have two dozen junior designers and one art director or something, that number is probably going to go down. But then I probably would have argued before any of this came up, do you really need two dozen junior designers in the first place? There's something funky about that in my brain. Yeah, market inefficiencies. But, but he I does also mention one of the things that uh, I've heard quite a lot of we're probably going to start seeing job positions called like junior prompt engineer. Yes. And that's also your point about the junior designer going to go. He's going to be the one managing these prompts. And maybe that's what the job positions will say. I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't think that really changes the job position that much. A, it's still grunt work, right? Even if part of your job as the junior designer now is to come up with how to massage AI into making the thing that you wanted to make instead of, doing it all manually, there's no way that's going to be the only thing that you're doing. That's totally true. You know why? Because in my advertising class I teach, I actually had them use AI tools and prompts to render ads. Mm. And yep, that they actually do about the same amount of work. <laughs> like, <laughs> because getting the, re-angling the prompt to get it right, or then having to do multiple hits and then combine them together in Photoshop. So they use all their digital software technology tricks and everything they've learned, but it's just a different order of, a, of complexity. 
that yeah. the AI is kind and of allowing. And if you played with the AI at all, the the specificity and verbiage that you have to write in order to get what you think you're gonna get is a whole creative art in itself. And it's never just highlight this piece in Photoshop, hit the generate button, and it's perfect. And I don't think that's how it usually goes. You know what I mean? Like, how many chord where it looked absolutely insane and then deleted it and did it again? Yeah, try it again. I mean, it's, that's yeah. fine. It's just how it goes. Yeah. Which is um, the grunt work that junior designers are doing manually anyway. So it's just like a different... It's It just comes down to... It's just a new tool, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's more abstract. It's, it's more abstracted. Yeah, no. So that also goes into in this article talking about doing an ad Turing test, which I thought was interesting. He's saying they had a bunch of design students work on one version of an ad and then a bunch of designers specifically using AI working on another version. And then he says, surprisingly, only 53% of the audience could tell the difference. Yeah. That just goes into exactly what we're talking about, that it's like a tool in your arsenal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The short answer is if you're mediocre, you're fucked. <laughs> like what I'm getting at here is 50% were able to tell and 50% weren't. And the thing was like generic design work. Yeah. It's pretty much, I would not be surprised at all. It's probably the main difference. Like the old expense in general, anything with AI, AI is really good against generalities, really good. It's not so good at the particulars. Like intermediate to an expert, the difference in every discipline is very minor. It's really not that much. It's maybe like a 10%. Three percent, one percent difference in some feature, and and in certain markets that difference makes all the difference. In other markets, it doesn't. So it's gonna like for example, like I know friends who like people who worked in like car sales, like car sales ads. Do you really think design excellence is required for that? Like the highest right. level? No, right. the AI would be perfectly adequate. In fact, quite frankly, those designers would be happy about it because it's less effort for me to even hassle with it. So I think it, it's. I'm not that surprised about it. He says in here, some people are too confidently saying AI is not coming for your job. I am one of those people saying pretty confidently I am not concerned about that for exactly all the reasons we're talking about. But one thing that I don't know is how it's going to affect the economics. Yeah, I think that's actually more like me put it this way. There's still people riding horseback and there's still farmers. Actually, not a great example. Actually, I'll use farming. I think farming is a fantastic example. Prior to industrialization, the technology leveraging, 80%, 90% of the population was farming. Then it went down to 50%. Then it went down to 25%. 25% United States, that was still in the 20th century. Early 20th century, 25% of the population was farmers. Now it's down to 1% of the population. So yeah, there's still farmers. really? Yeah, it's really small. It's incredibly small. No, yeah, 1.3. 1.3 direct farm. So, but not gone. No, it's not gone. Yeah, but that's the thing. But see, <laughs> but it changes the landscape. It's completely which I think nobody's denying. Right? At one like, point, like fifty percent, twenty five percent of the population was farming. Now, all those people got to do other things. That's the economist argument. But when it comes to again, like the creativity side of the equation, like will there still be junior designers? Yes, there will be. Will there be twenty five to one ratios to creative directors to junior designer? Definitely, I don't think so. Right. I think that goes down to one to one, maybe one to three, something like that. I guess the only way to know is to keep living and see what happens. And that's very true. And I think for all of us, like we all just got to do our best to go along with the times. Like it's, it would be foolish to ignore AI at this point. 
in the design industry and to what extent that affects what our day-to-day looks like or how much we can charge, I think is always going to be a wide scale and we just don't know yet (laughs) what anything's going to look like in five years. It's going to be very interesting. That's the thing. It's a lot of anxiety attached to this because you don't know. It's uncertainty. So you don't know. Partly this is why history matters because if we look at history and see repeating patterns, it's pretty fair to say what we expect what's likely going to happen. And generally, usually things that are not easily replicatable are going to be robust to hold up to that. So probably things like actually being creative. Creativity is a very hard thing. It still doesn't Mm -hmm. scale. Because remember, the whole thing with AI is it's still based on populations and averages. So that's what it's based on. So finding, I remember this from art school training and like finding your unique, ideally in art school and design school, you're supposed to find your unique voice. Ideally. Does that happen? Probably not. But ideal in theory, that is, it's a similar dynamic to when photography came into painting. I think of it also that from a historical perspective, because one of the jobs of painting was to depict reality. And then when a photography came and did it better, why paint? Did the painting go away? No, it became something very different. But that's what we got, the Monet's. That's what we got, the Van Gogh's. We got the Picasso's, right? The Dollies. The entire investigation of using painting as your medium was changed because it was released from its obligation of just reproduction and got into, I think, a lot of art. That's an interesting way to word it. Released from its obligation of reproduction. I like that. You enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, waxing poetics, (laughs) waxing philosophy. Shall we move on, Micah? Yes. Okay. Our next article is an interview with, hopefully pronouncing this correctly, Seb McLaughlin. Unsure for sure. I don't unsure. know. You can correct us. A designer who is from New Zealand but works in London, has a bunch of interesting clients, talks about how he went from university to finding Klimtype on Twitter back before Twitter sucked quite as much as it does now. <laughs> And oh, come on. Don't be so down on this. No, I think this is a little, this is a warm felt story. Of it like, is. It is in the sense of because community, right? Ideas. Listen, designers, especially in type world, like we're not just like as little islands onto ourselves. Like this whole story, it's there's three, four foundries involved and all these different designers who mentored him and guided him and inspired him and all these in his font directions and his projects. So I think it's a very heartwarming. I think it's almost a case study of the cultivation of your practice as a type designer. If you want to get into type, and I actually would attest to it, it more or less follows the model he discussed. It's generally these relationships that people are going to bet on you. They're going to take a bet on you. You're going to come with them to creativity. As he said, he did some pitching. Some people influence you indirectly. So Clem was an indirect relationship much more right. than compared to working with Greeley type. So Greeley type picked him up to do some work. They just worked together. And GT America was a release from that. Then he joined a graphic design studio in London, OKRM. And he released Gestalt in 2015, very early as a variable font. And he's gone on to now do work with Dymo. I think it's a story of how you cultivate your practice as a type designer. With some showcasing of his fonts, he's released over that time period, which I think is very insightful for anyone who wants to learn how do you cultivate your practice in kind of the wild west of design. And I still very much feel that that's the case. There's obviously school, but a school is not the full story. And I think examples like Seb is a really good case study of that. That is well put. I do think it is one one really good example of how a career can go 
based on online community. I don't think it's the only way to do it. Obviously, there's we've met tons of people who have done things differently, but this is a story that we have heard before of somebody putting their stuff out there, contacting the people that they admire, getting lucky and getting some gigs, which gave them opportunity to hone their craft and get in front of more people and so on and so forth. I will comment one interesting idea besides the case study of cultivating your practice is I think it is true in general. Like when you're making grotesque sans serifs, how are you going to make it unique in the marketplace now? Right. And the answer that at least the answer specifically for the GT America one that used as an example is moving to the code. So basically stylistic variation. So if you're treating grotesque sans serif as a conceptual category, you can basically interchange the font based on glyph properties and using open type features to do the swapping. Like that's the unique selling proposition or thinking about the typeface family. The game and type design is very different nowadays than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I think the level of complexity and abstraction is much higher now. It has to be because when anyone can make a, geome- a geometric sans serif, like what makes yours unique? And then cases that Seb walked over was treating genres as historical periods that you interswap with and using code to help you deliver a product that does that. I also say that because my, one of my major releases associated was based on that logic. So it's based on the idea of treating connections between a slab serif and a modern versus a monolinear. The idea that they are formally related so you can make a family based on it. I've seen other type families do a similar thinking. These meta families, you could use that term where they're not just thinking about the traditional normal relationships of how typefaces relate to each other, but instead they use these different levels of abstraction, either historical or genre-based or formal properties of some kind. That brings an interesting point that it seems like more and more type foundries are able to pump out more and more expansive families the last five years or so it seems like it's been a lot easier for foundries to pump out an entire super family from compressed to expanded, ultralight to black, include a mono. And while there have been some advancements in font technology, interpolation now is the norm and 10 years ago was an experiment. It existed, Um, but it was much more cumbersome to use. And it was behind the scenes work. It was back in the lab. Right. No one in public saw it. Now that's so much more normalized and a lot of the type design software has that built in. The tools have made it a little bit easier to pump out a large thing. And I think that's probably intimidating for a beginner going into the type design industry now without much education on how to do that yet. Looking at all of your favorite places being like, oh my gosh, they made... 37 fonts in this family. How the heck do they do that? That's crazy. How do I compete with that? It's just me. The game is so different now. Fonts prices have been deflating over time, but in the past, a font, let's say the average was 50 bucks per style per font. Beyond even the scope of the family, the character set was way smaller. You used to be able to do a 256 character set, an ASCII character set and call it a day. That's completely unheard of now. Now, it, you have to have at least an extended character set of like probably 526, something like that. And that's still pretty small. Nowadays, I see character sets in the thousands as norm. 
in this case, per style. And then you have this expansion of styles across weights and widths and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. And priced at roughly the same amount, if not cheaper than it used to be. Because now I think I've seen some stats where the average font per style is down to 35. It used to be 50. Now it's 35. So there's been some deflationary pressure on fonts over time. The quantity and the quality of the fonts are so much better now. They are. Yeah. That's no one can deny that fact. Partly because of what we said, all this tooling technology actually tied us into our, our discussions of AI and the other two articles. No, the examples of how the technology has affected type design industry, it's clear. We got way more fonts, way more, way better quality, way better quantity, done cheaper. So all the economies of scale were playing out as we expect, but established markets win. That's basically the name of the game. Meaning if you have a large collection of fonts and you've already been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years, you're doing great. Most likely <laughs> it's a lot harder if you're coming up. It's a common right. trend. Basically people on the, up the ladder already got up there and kicking off the ladder. <laughs> so kick the ladder right. back. Right. Have fun. Good luck. What a theme. But I'm not that pessimistic. I just, I don't think what worked in the past is going to work going forward. I think that much is true because the market forces and trends levered by technology and globalization are very different now than what it used to be. Yeah. I have a feeling that topic is going to come up a handful more times this summer. Most likely. And one of the answers is what do you do? You have to use more cognition. You have to be more creative. You have to think through on a higher level of abstraction, which does make it more demanding to come up in the field because you got to think through not just making like a, re a historical revival, like basically Heffler did. The historical revivals that were very needed and very in demand because there was literally no fonts. So you just needed right. that. There you go. You got your whole career based on that. It's more demanding now. What do you think is an opportunity? Very fun, very challenging. But yeah, I think it's very uh, different ballpark than it used to be. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyways, moving on. We got one link left and we love talking. So this last link, classic. I feel like we have to cover it because the Olympics are always a design topic. Team GB unveils new identity ahead of Paris 2024 Olympics. Frankly, I didn't realize we were coming up on 2024 already. I know. Already there, Micah. Micah, by the way, do you recall the 2012 London logo? Oh, yeah. It was something like it looked like tape, like it was made with tape. Yeah, it's like 90s, like electric tape. Yeah. OK, I do remember this for sure. Yeah, so everybody listening, just get, pop in this. your memory the 2012 London logo. Definitely have some redemption <laughs> in, <laughs> in this work. No, I will say, so I sense a family relationship between what the do you two. Mean? The kind of energy, the high vibrancy colors, the oh. pattern work. There's energy here where I'm sensing some similarities between these two. One thing I did, the pattern really caught up my attention. And also, I just saw Spider-Man twice, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> and the right. glitch art they do. I got a little of that energy in this too. Glitch art. Are you talking about like halftones and yes. like shading, like scratch shading, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I think we'd have a lot more fun discussing the design details in that movie, but I have to see it first. So we'll find an article after I see yes, it. Yes, maybe we'll talk about it some other time. But yeah. I will comment one thing about the font. So actually, because it's a type, is a type podcast. So we got to go into the type. The type had a very... This is a case when the brandy people got in there with the type people and they had to play some games with each other. The, what is it? They basically have the stylistic sets of the fonts that were designed by East of Rome Typeworks. That's the foundry. It's an, it's an individual type designer. He does good work. I've seen his work before. It's good. Um, I don't think I'd seen his work before. 
I'll send you a link to his Instagram. He's got good work. He only started relatively recently, at least from what I've seen online. What they did was they basically have a quirky version of the letters of the Sans Serif series of weights and a normal straight lace edition, relatively. <laughs> and the, but instead of just a swapping stylistic one and two, they named it. They gave it names. It's a smart move from a marketing perspective. I know that gets me fun of. Like I keep thinking of the most dangerous time is like when brand people try to justify their design decisions with over-the-top rationalizations right. that are way too unreasonable and not associated to design at all. I'm looking at you, Pepsi I was branding. just thinking Pepsi. The it's, old Pepsi because they got rebranded. I know. No, because yeah. it's ridiculous. It right. was absolutely insane. I always think that's the danger when marketing people, advertising people get their hands on design projects too much. Uh, this was a reasonable touch. Like Most people don't care about stylistic sets in and of themselves. They care about what they do with it. So just like before with the Seb article, the discussion of GT America is the swapping out of letter form genres with glyphs to give different vibes. Do you want to give a certain straight lace vibe versus more playful vibe? Using language to specify those switching of styles, I think is very useful. I think it's more, I think it's more natural and relevant if it resonates with the audience you're talking to, which I just want to comment. I think I appreciate the attempt here uh, with the Great Britain Olympic team trying to explain the font used in that way. Moments of street, they can make it simple. When they make it extraordinary, they emphasize it. They play up the quirky quality. Which I think is funny because a lot of the example imagery uses the extraordinary and not the ordinary. Yes. So obviously there's a favorite there. <laughs> Which I don't blame. The extraordinary version looks cooler. And they're probably just using the everyday style for like smaller yeah, details, stuff like that. Yeah. In their video explaining those two styles, the transition between them is smooth. It's a continuous transition. They mentioned, too, that they thought about motion from the get-go to add more, I hate this word, but dynamism, right? Make that, it, make it, make it pop. Make it pop, yeah, Micah. make it pop, exactly. <laughs> Which, that's every client ever, right? So you got to find some ways to do it. But I will say, it is very fun. It's real crazy. They seem to be integrating some handwriting, which I didn't see talked about, but is interesting. It might be supplemental. Like, I don't think, I don't, yeah. that's not the primary sans serif. The, a lot of the patterns are just bonkers. Like, it, it looks very cool, but it's crazy. Yeah, they look fun. No, it's fun. It's good. The pattern yeah. work is definitely the pattern work is what cuts my attention. Like, the pattern work's super fun. The type is interesting, but the pattern is really, in my opinion, is where it's at as a design direction. I do love the idea of it. I just, A, I'm not a sports guy and B, I'm bad at keeping up with the times. So also we're not British. So this is not our team. Speak for yourself. No, I'm not. Ah. I, I wish I was. It's one of my favorite places. But I, you know, you do you do like it over there. Scotland especially. Yeah, especially Scotland. Especially Scotland. Okay. Um, Micah, is this it? The wrap up of another episode together? That's what we got. I think I think we did a pretty good job, my friend. I had a great time. I hope you had a great time too. And all and everybody listening, thank you for having us. And I hope you learned and enjoyed some fun banter about fonts. <laughs> In any case, yes, thank you for joining us. We will be back next week with awesome new links. We actually had a couple people send in links via email that I think we might include next week. It depends. We'll see. Uh, so if you have any to share, send them in. We love getting new stuff. And otherwise, we will see you next week. See ya. Doodle-a-doo. 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 <laughs>